Good morning, sweet church. It's always so good to see y'all and to be with you again. Well, this morning we're going to finish the portion of Peter's letter where he's talking about suffering. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 1 through 19, the entire chapter. Uh, And that's beginning on page 1016 in the blue Bibles in front of you. And we're going to see three main ideas from this passage. And I'll encourage you to see if you can start to see them as we read the passage together. But the the three main ideas are, are one, it's glory, not suffering. That is the point. That's point one. Point two is that if we were made for glory, then we can live for glory. That's point two. And the third thing we're going to see at this very last part of this portion of suffering is uh, we're going to gain some wisdom from an eternal perspective. So if you found the passage, let's get right to it. This is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. <clears throat> this is what God's word says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And 
If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, let's pray. Oh God, please help us to hear what you would give us and be changed in the inner person. For if you do not help us to understand or give us hearts to obey, what good can any of us do either in preaching or listening? We need you in order to hear and believe, O God. And we ask that you would help us for your glory and for our good. Amen. Okay, it's a big passage with lots of great meat. I want to show you three main points, okay, from the text that we've just read this morning, and I'll do that by walking through the passage with you. Our first point is to see that suffering is not the point of the Christian life. Glory is the point of the Christian life. Now, Peter has spent a lot of time talking about suffering, but only to point us to glory. And we begin to see here, right away, in this passage before us, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus suffered in the flesh, and therefore arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of what thinking? What, what, what Peter are you talking about? What way of thinking are you talking about? Well, to understand this, we need to go back to the previous verses from last week, where we saw in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus' way of thinking was not suffering for suffering's sake. The scripture tells us he suffered in order to bring us to God. That's what it says in verse 318. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. His joy and ours. It was joy in the fruit of the cross that drove him. The glorious salvation that he planned from before the foundation of the world. That was his way of thinking. The Trinitarian masterpiece of salvation was that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He suffered. And why did Christ suffer? To bring us to God, church. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised his shame. He had glory in mind. Jesus' way of thinking was to suffer in order to restore and redeem a people. His mind was to do good. The greatest good, even at the greatest cost, his own death. He died to himself. And Peter is here telling those for whom he died to arm themselves with the same way of thinking, to die to themselves with glory in mind. You see, when we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we die to ourselves as well. 
And in verse 4.1, it says, we cease from sin. We cease from sin over time by degrees as we are renewed in our thinking and convicted of sin and then actively putting it to death by obeying God. So much of the Christian life is about obeying what we know of God from God. And as we do, we cease from leaning on our own understanding. And we more and more, in all of our ways, acknowledge him. We acknowledge that God is right. We recognize where we are straying and we repent, confessing God to be right and then trusting God by faith and turning from our sins to walk in his ways, hoping, hoping that he will lead us out of slavery and into freedom. This journey of faith begins with being born again of imperishable seed that we saw in chapter 1, whereby we are saved from the penalty of sin. But then it reveals itself over time as we are drawn into holiness. That was chapter 2. And thus freed from the power of sin in our lives. Then over time, our ceasing from sin culminates in a final death whereby we are finally free even from the presence of sin when we are delivered safely to heaven. So first, freed from the penalty of sin, then the power of sin, and eventually even the presence of sin. When we were done with this mortal flesh and we were taken to glory with God in heaven. And that, sweet church, is the point of this letter. Not suffering glory. Let's make it to the end. Church, Jesus is worth it. Let's make it to the end together. And since Christ suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. So, application one. It should be joy that drives us. We should set joy before us, enduring the suffering for Christ's sake. Not begrudgingly, but for the joy of heaven before you, church, and for the glory of God before you. And here's another, okay? We should see suffering in life as the way that God refines our hearts and our minds towards longing for heaven, and wherein we let go more and more of the world around us, and we die more and more to the world inside of us. That's what we see in Verse 4, 2, this is why we live the rest of our lives for the will of God. And what have we seen so far in this letter regarding God's will? Well, we're called to be holy in chapter 1, verse 16. To be subject to authorities and put God's glory on display in chapter 2, verse 12. He calls us to do good and bless others in 3, 9. And to proclaim what is true in 3, 15. And to endure suffering as we do all these things with an eye towards God in 317. Church, we need to prepare our minds for action in this way. So that we may be able to accept that we are sometimes called to suffer for doing good. But when we do, the goal is the do good part, not the suffering part. And if we conflate these, then we start to feel defeated and isolated, and alone, and we want more and more just to quit and give up. 
Let me illustrate to show you how suffering in the, is the context of faith and not the point, okay? So imagine your wedding picture. Or imagine a picture of you on vacation at the beach or in the mountains. Or maybe a Christmas picture. In each of these pictures, there's context. There's the background all behind you that provides some context. But the background's not the point. The object being photographed is the point. But you have some context because the Christmas tree in the back, or the beach in the back, or the mountains in the back, or your wedding party in the back. All of that is context. That's important, but it's not the most important thing. And in the Christian life, suffering is like the background that puts Christ's glory on display in our life. If we focus on the background and miss the point of the picture, we will confuse ourselves and discourage one another and miss the point of the Christian life, even if it's right in front of us. Peter's already illustrated this for us from Jesus' life in chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and is now in heaven in verse 322. Jesus did not die and remain in the grave. (laughs) He does not suffer in perpetuity. He is not crucified every time we take the supper. And he is not walking around in the flesh right now, being tempted in every way that we are. No, sir. In verse 318, it says that he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He is done with the flesh. His flesh was destroyed. He suffered in it. He bore the weight of wrath upon it. He died in the flesh, but he is not still dead. No, ma'am. He is alive. He's alive in the spirit and has gone to a place where flesh and blood cannot inherit. Saints, that was always the point for Jesus. That's why he came. And from before the foundation of the world, he has always been the pattern for us to follow. The pattern of death and resurrection. Humiliation and exaltation. Redeemer, what we saw in chapter 1, this Trinitarian masterpiece that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit were working together to achieve, We saw the Father electing and the Spirit sanctifying, and we saw the Son shedding his blood, redeeming us according to the Father's design. Glory has always been the point from the very beginning. Our salvation, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, has always been the point. Remember chapter 1, verse 5 and following, where Peter said that, We are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Why, Peter? Why are we grieved by various trials for a little while? He says, So that the testing of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the very beginning, church, all the way to the very end. God's point in our suffering 
in your suffering this week is glory. Suffering is characterized in this letter as only for a little while, whereas being done with suffering is characterized as forever. It doesn't feel like that in the moment. So listen by faith to God tell you suffering is only for a little while if necessary, but glory is forever because God is good. By faith, hear God tell you that this morning. Peter was telling the churches scattered as exiles that their suffering was not meaningless. It was not in vain. It was intended for good and would indeed result in good, glorious good. Suffering was not intended to harm, but refine. This letter was written to an early church, but not exclusively for them. This promise is for us too, beloved. Neither their suffering nor ours is ever the point, even if it means, even if it's a means to highlight the point. The point of the Christian life is glory, and that is the first point of this text today, that glory is the point of suffering. And if glory is the point of suffering, then when we suffer, church, we should live like glory is the point. This is the second point for for us to hear, and this is really an application of the first point. See how the scripture says to cease from sin in verse 4-1 and then live for God's will instead of human passions in 4-2? Then in verse 3, he begins to reason from the heart to the heart when he says to the churches throughout Asia that enough time has been spent doing things that destroyed their lives and held them in bondage and captivity to sin. And if I may now, I will try to both sharpen your mind and affirm your faith with the same reasoning that Peter has presented to us here in Scripture. If Mike Navarro were here right now, he would stand up and say phooey with this next question. But I will, I, will, I will ask this question. What have I said to you that you could sin all you want and still have heaven? To some, that might sound like an exciting proposition. Sin all you want. Still have heaven. But let's think about this first. Because the passions that Peter is telling them to set aside here in this text are the same passions he said in verse 211 that are waging war against their souls. Consider each of you What lasting happiness has sin ever brought your life? Consider the many promises sin and temptation have made to you. And then consider how many of those promises have ever come true. Hasn't the promise of freedom only brought slavery to more addiction? Or the hope of happiness led only to more shame? And the longing for some fulfillment only to more barren waste? If the pleasure of sin was a delightful free fall in a moment, did it not end up with your soul a bloody pulp of splattered flesh on the concrete? What good has sin ever brought your life? What has pride or selfishness or envy or bitterness ever been but a burden to you? 
the passions of the flesh are waging war against your soul. So, what have I said to you? You can sin all you like and still have heaven. If we think clearly, then we realize that's actually not a license for anything. It's actually an altogether undesirable offer. The truth is we already sin all we want, and we actually sin more than we want. And thus, sin, more sin, is not the solution. It's the problem. Our hearts desire not more sin, but more of Jesus, more holiness, more happiness, more heaven, more glory. That's what we want. This is what we long for. In fact, the way Peter says it here in verse 3 makes perfect sense. He says that the time past suffices for doing those things. I want none of it. Take it away. These acts of sin are not gifts to enjoy. They are snakes biting into your soul, pumping venom in your veins as you watch the poison pulsing through your body and feel it burning from the inside out. These passions seek to torment and devour you, and the time past suffices for pursuing them or enjoying them or being deceived by all they promise but have never once delivered. Rather than rush back to these old vices, remember what Peter has already shown us in verse 118, that we were actually ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers. He's saying to us that we don't have to live that way anymore. We have new and different appetites. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Holiness is a command, yes, but it's also a new nature. Rather than a burden, holiness is a joy and a compelling inward urge to live and love differently, to walk in the Spirit and abide in Christ because He is altogether lovely. Since glory is the point of the Christian life, Peter is saying we can now live like it. That's what he's saying in verse 6, that we can live in the Spirit the way God does. Before we go any further, I just want to ask you the question. Do you want to live in the Spirit the way God does? Do you want it? Sometimes we have an intellectual curiosity about things we don't actually desire at all. There's a whole industry built around this human phenomenon. It's called clickbait. I don't really want this stuff. Just some weird curiosity. Click. Curiosity is not the same thing as a longing or desire. Curiosity is not bad. I'm not saying that, but it's also not the same as desire. So let me ask you, do you desire it from the heart to live in the spirit the way God does? As Peter says in verse 4-6, do you, friends, kiddos, church, do you want to live with God and live the way God does? Do you want to know God beyond mere intellectual curiosity? Peter has told us several points in the letter what it looks like to live like God. And it seems always to come back to living in relationships with God and man. 
That's where the text goes next. He says in 122, to love, this is the history of throughout the, he says in 122, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And in verse 2-5, he says that we are being built together as a spiritual house to that same end. He continued in verse 3-8, where we saw last week that we should have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And now here we see him again in verses 7-11 through say the same thing. Bring us back to the nature of a life born again from imperishable seed. A life of a person who increasingly loves God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and their neighbor as themselves. Such a person is self-controlled here in the text. Sober-minded, we've seen that before. Keeps loving one another earnestly, we've seen that before. Since love covers over a multitude of sins. He then says to show hospitality to one another, we've seen that. Without grumbling, we see next what it looks like practically. He says to use the gifts God has given for the good of others. Whether speaking or serving. And then he tells us why. At the end of verse 11. It's that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. <laughs> so many applications from this list of applications. But first, let's see this. That at the end of this long list that describes living like God is a doxology. It's praise to God, of God, for God, when he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Church, in describing the life that God tells us to live, Peter himself breaks out in praise. And do you, did you see that the hope there that he mentions? He, he says the hope and promise of glory are there. When we live like we were made for glory, when we speak as those who speak oracles of God, when we serve with strength that he provides, it brings glory to God through Jesus Christ, through whom we've been saved and called to obey. And this is application one, that living in the Spirit the way that God does leads us to praise. We should live in a way that leads to praise. In our own heart, we ought to recognize God's kindness and we ought to praise. We ought to see God's kindness and evidences of grace in others and we ought to respond in praise. Church, if we're not responding in praise, there's something not right in our heart. And there's something unsatisfying in life. Application two from this is to see that the spiritual life is not some mystical spirituality that disconnects us from all that is material or human. No. No. The life of the Spirit that God lives connects us to God and man. So friends, here I ask you, who are you pursuing for the sake of their spiritual good and happiness? Who is it? Living in the Spirit draws us into community, not isolation. Look at this description here and ask yourself, how can one grow in the Lord apart from other Christians? Look at the list. It could say memorize the Scripture. It could say that. It could say pray by yourself for three hours in your closet. It could say that. It doesn't say any of that. 
Everything here listed implies community. So friends, Christians, where is your community and how are you growing in it? Application two is to deliberately walk along other Christians. Walk alongside of them with an eye to their spiritual good for the Lord. Do you want the life of the Spirit that God lives? Because if we do, it means being actively engaged in one another's life for their spiritual good with an eye towards God's glory. And here's the third application. I want to encourage you this week to reach out to another person that you've covenanted with here, a Redeemer, to do good in the Lord, and talk through this passage together with an eye to do these things together for others. Renee, sister, Laura, Naomi, Christian, call someone this week and read through this passage I just did and look at the ways that it conveys to one another and think about how you might do this for one another and other people in the church. Call someone this week and thoughtfully plan out how you might do these together. Reach out to another member here and plot out how you may do spiritual good to one another. This is what we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit doing in chapter 1. They're in heaven plotting out how they can save humanity. The Father elects. The Son sheds His blood. The Spirit is sanctifying. They're all working together, church, for your good. From before the foundation of the world, God was plotting how to do spiritual good for you. We imitate him and glorify him when we do the same thing for one another, with one another, for God's glory. Do you want the spiritual life that God lives? Do this for one another. Hmm. And if in God's providence, you're just too busy. Living in Northern Virginia with lots of things going on. If you're too busy, then do this. After, you read this. after you read the list, think about who you see among us that is doing some of this well, where you see the fruit and evidences of this in their life, and send them a text and say, Sister, I think you do this. You've encouraged me. And then follow them as they follow Christ in it. The second point from our text today is to live for glory with a new orientation and purpose that desires and has new desires and a new capacity for relationships with God and man. Even, even in suffering and trial, even as exiles scattered throughout Asia, and even as we may be too busy in Northern Virginia, God is here calling us to live with heaven in mind in ways that reflect the new person who longs to see good days because this is the purpose for which we were made and to which we have been called. To live in the Spirit the way God does. That's point number two for us today. These first two points lead us to a conclusion now describing the wisdom of eternal perspective. We'll see that in two ways. The first way so we can gain eternal perspective is through or through suffering is to see the difference between the world's 
in God's perspective in suffering. So look again with me at verse 4-4, where we read of how, to, how the unbelieving world reacts to those who don't want to follow the old pattern of sinful passions. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Peter is saying that they think it's strange that we're not like them and don't share their same desires. And even when we do share their same sinful desires, we have a new nature that is putting to death those desires. It's not only strange to the unbelieving world, it's offensive. See how in verse 4 it characterizes their response? They malign you. Peter is saying in verse 4.12 though, don't be surprised by this, but expect it. Prepare your minds for action when it happens. For the occasions where we are maligned for doing good and obeying God should remind us what we too often easily forget, that this is not our home, that we are exiles and strangers here, and that we were made for heaven. We don't recognize the fruit of the Spirit in our lives sometimes, but when the world does and painfully maligns us for it, it's actually a blessing. It's not a curse because it reminds us of who we are. That's why in verse 413, Peter says, in such times we should rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Glory is everywhere through this letter. Did you hear that? Did you hear glory? Church, you were made for it. It's written all over the letter. It's here in the very beginning of chapter 1, and we're going to see it even in chapter 5 next week. And it's in some way here now in the middle as we bear up patiently under suffering for the Lord here in our moments, in daily life. And it's a cause for rejoicing. Let me give you an example from Peter and the apostles' lives. Okay? In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Let me give you Jesus as another example. Jesus is our pattern in suffering and being scorned and, being, and then being put to death. He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we are called to take up our cross and follow him in life and in death and in resurrection. Jesus told Peter and the other disciples just before his death that the world would hate them. He said in John 15, 18 and following, that if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is above his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. 
Church, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Church, this is Jesus speaking to us. Whenever this happens in our lives, we can rejoice that we bear the name of Christ, that we have a living hope. Suffering for righteousness' sake, though, is not the same as suffering for some folly or foolishness or sin in our life. That's what Peter's saying in chapter 4, verse 15. Christians, he says, can suffer consequences of evil when we participate in evil. And this is not the same as when we suffer for obeying Jesus. When we suffer for doing wrong, there is no cause for rejoicing. And there is no cloak of Christianity to hide behind. There's only confession and repentance. But when we suffer for obeying Jesus and for bearing his name, we can rejoice with a happy heart, for we have a living hope. Now, we have a living hope. That's what Peter tells us. But from the world's point of view, this seems odd because Christians die every day. If you have a living hope and all your brothers and sisters are dying, then what does that mean? The argument Peter is recognizing is, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, is that if we have an imperishable hope and eternal life, then how is it that Christians die like everyone else? The world sees a difference in our lives. They malign us for it. But then they see the same end as theirs, death. So we look like fools, for there is no difference in our end. And so the world is saying, why not throw your lot with us? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Why not totally give in to every passion that suits our fancy like they do? This is what Peter's explaining in verses 4, 5, and 6. It's here that Peter gives a defense for the hope that is within him. And he gives us some eternal perspective when he reminds everyone in verse 5, the reason we do not live lives of debauchery is that God will judge the living and the dead, everyone, he says, will give an account to God. Church, every one. Then he explains further in verse 6, something altogether delightful and a reason to hope here this morning. Because verse 6 brings us back from the ledge of looking at death the way the world does, from a worldly perspective. Read with me. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. He's talking about those who heard the gospel when they were alive, but have since died at the time of Peter's letter. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He's saying that those who were born again to a living hope, they still die, that's true, in the flesh on account of the general consequences of sin. Because all flesh dies as a result of the fall. Christians bear the same end regarding the flesh as those without Jesus. But that's actually a cause for hope. Not for grief for the Christian. Because flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God anyway. And we struggle with sin for as long as we walk in it. But when we die, we are raised again. Like Jesus, from the dead, in the Spirit, live with God, in the Spirit, the way God does. This is an eternal perspective that we easily lose when we see life and death the way the world does. 
And Peter helps us live for glory by reminding us that death is not the end of life, just the end of flesh for those who are born again of imperishable seed. This is the God we are here to worship today, church. As an illustration, I'll point us back to chapter 3 where Peter pointed us to the days of Noah. To the days of Noah. How strange it must have been for the world to hear Noah preach of a God who judges both the living and the dead, but who also loves to save people from their, from their sins and loves to make all things new. The flood was inconceivable to those in Noah's day, but it was real. No one had ever seen one. Noah, why are you building a boat on dry ground? And when they did realize what was happening, it was terrible. Multitudes drowning in the water, being crushed by the waves and pulled down to the depths of the seas by the weight of their sin and guilt. Everywhere outside the ark, lungs filling up with water until the ungodly against God could scream no more. But then what happened? God preserved his people. And he started over and brought in a new creation of sorts. The old one was gone. The judgment cleansed the world and separated the righteous from the unrighteous, those of the flesh and those of the spirit. And that's what death still is. It puts the death, the flesh, so that the spirit may live as God does in glory. Peter gives us here an eternal perspective the world cannot understand and will not bear that when a person who is loved by God is judged in the flesh the way everyone else is, they are brought out of the waters of judgment like Noah and the ark and are saved to a new life in heaven, free from the penalty and the power and the presence of the flesh and sin. This is death for the Christian church. Beloved, those who we have loved, <sighs> beloved, those who we have loved and have died in the Lord made it through the flood, and they're living now in the Spirit. The way God does. They're not lost. They're not suffering. And they're living without the burdens of the flesh that grieve them in life. But no longer have any weight on them anymore. If Jesus bore the penalty for their sins, Peter is saying, then their judgment was laid on him and they have an inheritance in heaven that is better than any fleshly 
passion they had to fight against all their mortal lives. And this brings us to the end of this chapter, where he gives us a second lesson in eternal perspective regarding suffering. He says in verse 17 that it begins with the household of God. And then in verse 18, that if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly in the sinner? Everyone, listen, if you can, to what God is saying. The only way that anyone is saved is through the death of Jesus on their behalf. Salvation requires the death of his son. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one goes to the Father but through him. At least, no one goes in peace before the Father but by him. Everyone will go to the Father and give an account. But only those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus will hear the words, enter my happiness. Glory. Now, Peter is helping us remember how terribly difficult it is to save a person. We take it for granted if we think like the world from a worldly perspective. We think that it's easy for God to save a person. Maybe turn a blind eye to sin and grade everyone on a curve. No, sir. It costs God nothing to make all things. It was easy for him to do that. In fact, it was easier for God to speak all creation into existence than it is for us to speak the alphabet. It was easy for God to speak and make it all come. But it cost him the death of his son to recreate it. That was not a word. That was an act of love that cost him the death of his son. It was easy for God to create Adam and Eve, but so very, very difficult to recreate us in Christ. So then, what of those who don't have Jesus, but but will be judged by the same holy God who requires perfect holiness of of us all? What will happen to those people if God truly does judge impartially according to each person's deeds? What happens to those in the flood without an ark? Friends, kiddos, church, judgment begins with the house of God, but it does not stop there. It keeps going. It begins on all those who are in Jesus. And when the righteous die, they are given Jesus as a reward. But the rain that fell on the ark did not stop on the ark. It rained on the ark and then flooded the whole earth. Listen, we have a Savior if we turn to him and repent of our sins and obey his voice as he calls out, as he calls us out of the passions of the flesh. And if we die to sin, then someday we will die a final death, only to finally rise with him in glory, to live in the Spirit as God does. And that is the summary of the matter that Peter calls us to in verse 419, where he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This precious eternal perspective is that we are to do good 
and trust God who is working all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me give you two applications from this. First, we don't need for God to explain all things to us if we simply entrust ourselves to him. And when he brings suffering, we will do well not to call him to give an account as to why us and why now. Let us simply do whatever good we are able to do in the moment and entrust ourselves to him. Don't ask for explanations. Don't demand proofs of God. Rather, consider the one who bore suffering in our stead. And if you love him, then follow him wherever he goes, even if he leads you into suffering. You don't have to understand. Just trust and obey. And trust yourself to a creator who intends good for you. Now, we'll leave you with a final illustration from Peter's life. We're in John 6. After Jesus fed the multitudes more bread than they could eat, and the multitudes, in response, sought after Jesus, and they followed him, followed him around, seeking after him, the Scripture says. The Bible even calls these people disciples. But in a moment of hard teaching, hardly suffering, but hard teaching, when Jesus told them all that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they didn't understand. And so in that moment of trial, they turned and left. They left the bread of life. It wasn't persecution. They simply just, at the time, didn't want the life of God in the Spirit. So they left. Then Jesus turns to his disciples and he invites them to leave. Don't you want to leave too? And to that, Peter, Peter answers by faith from the heart and says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, when we entrust ourselves to God and do good by faith, however small it is at the time, then it matters not how hard the teaching is or how hard the trial is. We follow the call of our shepherd and we go where he leads because we don't want to be anywhere else. Because what else are we going to do? If we love Jesus, then we go where he goes with the hope that someday he will take us home and deliver us safely to heaven. And church, he is going to deliver us to heaven for that place, that longing, for that holiness, because church, we were made for glory. Let's pray.